Our guest in the studio is uh, Michael Sheldon, a professor at Indiana State University and uh, author of Melville in Love, The Secret Life of Herman Melville and the Muse of Moby Dick. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, We've spoken to you before. Uh, You've written a number of biographies or slices of biographies, you might say, because you take a real interest in the specifics of a particular time in a person's life. But if we were trying to figure out the logical sequence, Graham Greene, Cyril Connolly, uh, George Orwell, Winston Churchill, Mark Twain, why now your biography uh, of Melville? There are certain moments in all of those lives where things just light up, for me anyway. They shine a kind of spotlight on the whole life. We all know we have these moments in our lives where they're, they're defining moments. And a defining moment interests me more than all of the ditch digging that a lot of biographers have to do when they lay the groundwork for the obligatory passage through various stages in which, if they were honest, and the reader would be honest about this, they'd say not much was happening. So we all have these uh, dull periods in our lives. But how about those moments when it's scary as hell or, you know, we think our lives might end any moment? Things are happening that are so uh, cataclysmic that if we could bring in the cameras and, you know, say lights, action, uh, we would have a hell of a story to share with the world. If I could just interrupt for a moment, taking that thread, it seems unusual that the interesting part of Melville's life for you is when he's uh, in the interior United States and not when he's in some South Pacific island making a portrait of this exotic woman named Faye Away Mm -hmm. uh, or Jumping Ship. So it's curious that you point to this uh, rather staid part of his life that seems interesting. Well, I I suppose a lot of sailors would tell you there's a lot of boredom in sailing, especially (laughs) when you don't have much wind. (laughs) There are moments when you're in the doldrums. And yes, then there are moments when the whale is out there and Melville was part of this whaling expedition and, you know, you're chasing a whale that could turn on you and kill you at any moment. These guys were out there with harpoons in small boats. So, yes, there is the whole seafaring aspect of Melville's life that's been covered. What's what's fascinating to me is he returns to the United States, still a relatively young man in his late 20s. He writes books dashing them out. I mean, in one year he wrote two major novels. So he comes back to New York, he settles in, he starts to write these books, and then out of nowhere, he heads off to the most remote part of Massachusetts at that time, very difficult to get to, the Berkshires. And he stays there for the next 13 years. And there's got to be a reason, and people have speculated what the reason might have been. I think I found out what that reason was, and it made, for me, the most exciting period of his life, because it was the period in which he felt most alive. Let's back up a little bit. Why why Melville? Uh, I understand that the period is an interesting one in his life, but why him after these other figures? Well, I kind of go back and forth between literary and political or historical figures, and in some cases, a guy like Orwell fits all of those things, doesn't he? I get uh, constant inquiries from people to talk about Orwell as a political figure. I gave a big talk in Barcelona about his involvement in the Spanish Civil War, So he's political, he's literary, he's historical now, he's a major influence on the 20th century. I like somebody who kind of 
doesn't quite fit any of those particular things, might fit all of them. And Melville is one of these interesting giants that we didn't know much about. If you went around asking people, tell me something about Herman Melville other than the fact that he wrote Moby Dick, you would get a pause from even English professors. <laughs> they would say, well, uh, he, uh, you know. And I kind of wondered, where does a giant of literature who writes Moby Dick, kind of our national epic, where does he come from? And then why, even more inter- interestingly, does he disappear? Because he does. He writes this great book, he gets a lot of attention, and then silence. And you, uh, there's one book that's referenced in, in yours, uh, Billy Budd, that sits in an attic for decades. He doesn't even publish it. It's on his desk when he dies. He dies 40 years after Moby Dick is published. For those 40 years, his career is in decline. He's 32. He's young. He's vibrant. He's full of life when he writes Moby Dick. But it fails commercially. It's sort of lackluster critically. It doesn't get many good reviews. And at the end of his life, desperate, despondent, he writes one last book, this thing that would be called Billy Budd, and leaves it on his desk, and it sits in an attic for 30 years in an old tin box. I've held the box in my hands. <laughs> and and I, think, I think about what it would have been like to go into the attic where it was and find that box and pull out those manuscript pages. Um, amazing. Now, we're going to talk about um, your theory of why this place was of such interest to him for 13 years in the Berkshires. Uh, it involves a woman named Sarah Morwood, but can I ask how you stumbled across her story and why she became so interesting to you or how she became so interesting to you? She was really forgotten. In fact, I've been to her grave in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, part of the Berkshire area, and uh, it's been so long since anyone paid any attention to her that her gravestone split in half. I don't know how at one point, and the top part is resting against the back and the letters on it are almost faded, and no one seems to care. She had really been pretty much written out of the historical record. And yet I ran across a letter, just in my reading, just just randomly reading, in which Melville calls her his goddess and raves about what, what a wonderful character is, that she's the sweetest smelling of all the roses on the earth. And, and I thought, what? What's going on here? Most women, if you ask them, if, if they're married... And another married man is writing letters of that sort to them. They'll think something's up. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought something was up. And uh, I followed my nose uh, on a trail of evidence that led me all through the Berkshires. Uh, It's surprising how much of their lives have have really uh, survived in a basement in an old farmhouse outside of Pittsfield where Melville once lived. The Berkshire Historical Society has their archives. They can't afford a better place. And they're lined up against the walls in this old, smelly basement. And in there I found a box with more letters of Sarah Morwood than I'd ever found anywhere else. There are some at the New York Public Library. They're scattered all over. She was a great letter writer. And in those letters I discovered her life. And I discovered that the man who was writing those romantic letters to her, he wrote half a dozen of these letters, all of which were filled with those kinds of effusive uh, and exuberant remarks, that she was a woman very worth loving and admiring. She, she was an incredible woman. 
Now, you make reference in your book that there's not much of Melville's side of the story uh, because, in part, he was so bad about keeping letters, he would throw them away. Uh, Do you have any of his stuff in this record? Oh, yeah. No, in fact, it shocked me because there was a kind of blockage, if you ask me, in the minds of many of the more traditional Melville scholars. They had made up their minds years ago that this mysterious move of Melville's to the Berkshires must have been because of Nathaniel Hawthorne who lives six miles away. And if you know the area, the difference between Pittsfield and Lenox is, is a tough road if you're walking it, six miles. And, and over that road, you know, if, you've, if you're so intent on visiting with Hawthorne, you'd probably move a little bit closer. <laughs> In fact, when he moved there, he moved right next door to Sarah. He bought at great expense a farm he could not afford that adjoined hers and stayed there for the next 13 years until she died. The month she died, he moved away. Call me suspicious. <laughs> but I think there's a case to be made that he's obsessed with this woman, especially since the main reason his career and life began to fall apart after Moby Dick is that he had saddled himself with enormous amounts of debt to buy this farm next to hers. He was a sailor. He knew nothing about farming. He was counting on Moby Dick, making his name and reputation and perhaps his fortune so that he could stay there and have this affair with this woman he'd fallen head over heels in love with. And it wasn't Nathaniel Hawthorne six miles away. It was this wonderful, beautiful woman six minutes away um, that brought him to the Berkshires. If you just joined us, we're speaking with uh, Michael Sheldon a professor at Indiana State University and the author of the recently published Melville in Love, The Secret Life of Herman Melville and the Muse of Moby Dick. Now, we are going to get to this uh, occasion where they meet uh, and trace through these uh, 13 years when uh, Sarah and Herman have various degrees of uh, intimacy. But let's set up the overture first by talking about how Melville gets to that point. And one of the questions uh, I've seen in the material surrounding your book, uh, one of the questions asked is, how does Melville get to be Melville? This, how does this guy who goes out on ships get to be writing this major epic that has citations from every single mm-hmm. literary source you could ever think of? How does he become that guy? He's always been something of that guy. It's a case somewhat like Churchill's where I was amazed in studying the young Churchill to see how much the young Churchill was like the old Churchill. Some of us do, at a certain point, kind of emerge fully formed and our characters shaped. Melville was, like a lot of these giants of 19th century America, self-taught. And he read just unbelievably. I mean, he was always reading, always had a book with him. And I think he uh, he had also this ability to absorb not only experience but reading in equal measure. And there was something that clicked in him, especially around this time when he started to read Shakespeare seriously for the first time. He he became caught up in, in the flow of Shakespeare's language. And you can see that in this kind of roll of language that, that, that goes through Moby Dick like a huge wave. And the interesting thing about Sarah Morwood is she was just as well acquainted with Shakespeare. She was a woman who was very literary, who was regarded as one of the literary lights of the Berkshires. And suddenly he had a woman with whom he could share these new passions. He couldn't with his own wife. She was a judge's daughter, very dull, very dutiful, uh, a nice lady, but not the match for 
Herman Melville's kind of ravenous attitude toward learning and toward poetry and, and literature of all kinds, Sarah was his match. And discovering that in those boxes in the, in the Berkshire uh, basement, that's what began to crystallize a lot of this for me. Let's pause and think about Lizzie because she does deserve a certain due in the story as well. I'm sure she's gotten it from other biographers as well. But his wife that he's married to for decades, how do they end up together? As you say, not the match. He's been traveling the world and, and hopping these, these ships. And she's been a very straight-laced, as you say, daughter of a judge. What's the attraction? What prompts them to make that ill-considered decision to get married. Like a lot of 19th century couples, marrying your cousin, almost that's what it was. She wasn't literally a cousin, but she was a family friend. Her father was the benefactor of Melville's family and had been for many years. It was almost really like marrying your cousin. Uh, He felt comfortable with her, and he needed the judge's support. The judge was the most powerful uh, political person in in all of uh, Massachusetts. He was the chief justice of the of the Judicial Supreme Court in Massachusetts. Lived on Beacon Hill, one of the nicest houses. It's still there. It's worth millions today. It's right behind the State House in Boston. So you take this very um, well-bred young lady away from her wealthy father on Beacon Hill, and you put her in a little uh, apartment in New York City first, and then in a rundown farmhouse in the Berkshires. And she goes along with all of it, but it's not really the, what I'm sure her family expected for her. She married the vagabond sailor, and she got a vagabond life. And then the vagabond sailor discovers the real woman. He discovers this woman over the hill, uh, up on the hill in, in, in Pittsfield, who's beautiful, who's charming, and he falls flat on his face for her. I mean, it's, it's almost instant. And, um, and he doesn't look back for the next 13 years. Well, let's turn now to uh, Sarah Morwood and uh, their meeting in 1850. Is that right? That's right. What evidence is there that there was this close connection between them? Well, you know, it's interesting. As I was, I was going to mention this earlier, when I was reading some of the known documents about their affair, it was fascinating to see how the mostly male scholars of the Melville world routinely dismiss these. They say, well, he can't really have meant those things. I think a lot of men think that women don't think you're serious about certain things when women think you're very serious. When women hear things like, you're my goddess, they tend to take that seriously. <laughs> the men say, well, I, you know, I told her these things. And, you know. and I think a lot of the male scholars assumed that Melville wasn't in earnest when, in fact, he was. And his actions back those up. But just to give you one example, after the summer in which they meet and they live under the same roof in an old mansion that's a boarding house, Sarah buys that property. She has a wealthy husband. And Melville, in those weeks that they're living together, is inseparable from her. He, his wife gets pushed in the background, and you hear almost nothing about her while he's going off on parties, arranging costume parties with her balls. He goes on picnics. He goes on lake expeditions. He's everywhere with her. And she is a, a, an excellent uh, rider. She has several horses, and she loves being in the country because she can ride her horses. And one of her ho- horses is a colt named Blackquake, who no one else can ride but Sarah, and she rides him side saddle. And Melville rides with her over the countryside with these, these horses, 
and when Blackquake later in the year is injured when he runs across a rail track and, and gets hit by a locomotive, Melville says that the broken leg for the horse wouldn't be any worse if he had a broken leg because both of them would be missing another summer in the company of Sarah Morwood. And he goes on about how she would stroke his his neck and whisper sweet nothings in his ear. And for a moment you think, is he talking about the horse or himself? <laughs> and we actually have Melville's words. It isn't something that you're cooking up in which he pretty much admits he can't live without this woman any more so than the horse could have a life without him. And, of course, the horse had to be put down. And uh, Melville makes a direct comparison between the two in a letter he wrote to a friend in which he was trying to be a little coy because, after all, he's admitting that he's in love with a married woman. And, by the way, this is in the wake of a few months after the publication of the most famous novel in American literature about adultery, The Scarlet Letter. And both Sarah and Herman were fascinated by the Scarlet Letter, and in their letters write about their fascination. I contend that one of the reasons that Melville was fascinated by Hawthorne wasn't that he had some sort of emotional connection to him. He was fascinated by a man who could get inside what he called the mystery of sin, the adultery that you see in the Scarlet Letter, because he and Sarah were going to plunge into that world uh, themselves, and both were curious about what Hawthorne could tell them. In fact, Hawthorne didn't want to say much of anything about it. He was happily married. It was just a story to him. (laughs) Melville and Sarah were living it. Hawthorne uh, was just writing it. Now, do you find any sort of smoking gun in this correspondence? You make reference to this flowery language, and I don't dispute your contention that this is suggestive of a certain attitude. But is there anything you find that seals the deal for you? Well, it took me to Philadelphia um, to the Rosenbach Museum because one of the fascinating things for me were the the gifts they exchanged. She gave him, and this was remarkable, no married woman of the time would give another woman's uh, husband two flasks of cologne. She packed them in a box with a couple of very expensive books and sent them to him with um, her compliments. That was a daring thing for a woman in a small town in New England to do. And I tracked all of these books that they traded back and forth. And Melville was in the habit of marking his books with very distinctive check marks. There's a whole site online that features images of these books that he would mark in this very distinctive way. And I knew that one book that he had given Sarah was a a volume of Dryden's poetry. And I thought, why is he doing that? Dryden wasn't his kind of poet. I went to Philadelphia, I went to the museum, and I went there and looked at the book. Almost no marks in it whatsoever, except for his notation at the beginning that he has given this gift to her, from Herman Melville to Sarah Morwood. And yet in the very back, almost in a sea of white margins, there's very distinctive check marks between these very erotic lines in a poem that uh, Dryden wrote about a secret love affair between a princess and a young man in which they have to find secret spots to have their love affair. And, and for me, that was one of the things that sealed the deal because Melville took very seriously his reading and his marking of these books. And if you hand a married woman uh, a very expensive book like this, it's, has, um, it's gilt-edged, it's, it's a gorgeous book. If you hand that to her as a present and she's given you cologne 
and suggestive books herself. And you've marked just a few passages that are highly uh, suggestive and erotic. Again, I would say there's probably something going on there. (laughs) But again, it's inconceivable that they could part from their spouses and, and form any kind of union. No. In, you know, in the 1850s, divorce was almost unheard of. Adultery was the great sin. The reason that I think Hawthorne's book on adultery was so powerful is that that Puritan hatred of the sin of adultery, uh, putting that scarlet A on a woman's breast and making her parade it in public, was still just below the surface in old Puritan thinking in New England. And it's interesting, in one of her letters, Sarah remarks specifically about her fascination for that scarlet A that Hester has to wear in the, in the scarlet letter on her breast as a sign of what she's done. And I think it almost became, as it was for Hester, a, a badge of honor almost. It, it was certainly that in uh, Sarah's um, frame of thinking, I think, because she had come to identify with being an outsider. And I don't know if you want to get into this yet, but if you really want smoking guns, it's the night that Melville and Sarah climb a 3,000-foot mountain and spend the night there without their spouses. In fact, Melville's wife is sleeping in their bed alone back at their house 15 miles away, seven months pregnant. Now, you interview some women and ask, ask them what they think when they're seven months pregnant and they're sleeping in their bed alone and their husband is on a mountaintop with a pretty neighbor woman. <laughs> <laughs> Point well taken. That's a party, though, that has a very interesting cast of characters as well, and perhaps we'll get to that. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that uh, this is Profiles on WFIU, and we're talking this evening with Michael Sheldon. He's the author of Melville in Love, The Secret Life of Herman Melville and the Muse of Moby Dick. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest is Michael Sheldon, the author of Melville in Love, The Secret Life of Herman Melville, and The Muse of Moby Dick. And before the break, we were talking about uh, the night on uh, Greylock Mountain, uh, where Herman and Sarah and a handful of others, I think four other folks, spend a night camped out on this 3,000-foot mountain while Melville's seven-month pregnant wife is sleeping uh, alone. And as you say, that was something of the smoking gun that says something's afoot. Now let's talk a little bit about um, the degree to which this is a mutual situation. And I ask that because in your book, 
it seems like uh, Sarah Moore would had an effect not just on Herman Melville, but on uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, on uh, to some degree Nathaniel Hawthorne, perhaps. Who could tell with Nathaniel Hawthorne? He seems fairly reserved. Uh, but with a handful of folks, she would, and sometimes it seemed like she was exploiting uh, a certain flirtation with guys uh, to advance her own literary careers. Or Is there evidence that Melville's anything other than another occasion of, of her sort of dalliance? She was such a vibrant woman, and it was to some extent because she felt that her life might be cut short. In fact, she died at the age of 40. She died of what they used to call consumption, tuberculosis. She always felt as though she was shadowed by some kind of um, illness or early death that might threaten her. And I think she felt that she had to make the most of her life while she had it. She also loved the fact that she could be free. And free for her meant free of a lot of the inhibitions of her society, which were enormous. And she, in that sense, she's not unlike another famous woman of the period, Margaret Fuller. I was just thinking. Yeah. Who goes away and marries, or perhaps didn't marry, an Italian and comes back with a child that may have been born out of wedlock. And that's what uh, Sarah was up against. And that's why it's so important that when she writes her own private account, Sarah does, of that night daringly spent at the mountaintop, with supplies of champagne and rum and, you know, they have a kind of um, wild night up there by bonfire. When she writes about that later, she says on leaving that mountaintop, she looked back like Lot's wife with lingering glances. Well, the biblical Lot's wife is looking back longingly at Sodom. (laughs) (laughs) And our culture may be slow to get some of these references, but I believe you me, her culture was not. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to preach a few miles away from Pittsfield in Stockbridge in the 1700s. And he's the guy who's leading the charge for sinners in the hands of an angry God. This, this feeling is still very much alive. And Sarah takes pride in the fact that she's breaking some of these taboos. And to fall in love with the daring, wild, original, like Herman Melville, who lives next door, for God's sakes, is, is the pinnacle for her, and the same, Melville feels the same for him. He's never met a woman like this. And it's interesting that the moment he finishes Moby Dick, he has to do one thing. He has to climb that mountain with Sarah Morwood. He, he invites Hawthorne to come. Hawthorne won't do it wisely. <laughs> he knows it'll be a scandal. He won't go. They invite a few other friends, and they go up and spend the night, and all of them know they're going to be damned for it when they come back down. And it was a scandal in the village, but they had to do it. And, of course, Hawthorne made this this comparison, and others have made it too. Greylock is a humpback shape on the horizon. And from Melville's own study where he wrote Moby Dick, you look out on the, the horizon and you see Greylock, and it can look like a whale. And it, at night or in the evening, you know, as dawn's coming up or as the sun is going down, You look out, and if your eyes are a little fuzzy, you might think there's a whale swimming across the horizon. Hawthorne makes that point, that he was often struck by that distinctive shape and that it looked whale-like and that Melville must have felt that. And I think the fact that the moment you write the last words of Moby Dick, you, you put down the manuscript, 
and you look at the lady next door and you say, well, you go up a mountaintop and spend the night with me. Again, call me suspicious, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your point's taken. Two of the curious figures, if I recall correctly, on that night uh, on the mountain are two brothers who are um, very important in the literary scene of this time and this place. And one of them that's very curious to me is part of that evening because he is so straight-laced. As I was reading your book, the figure that appeared in my imagination was someone like Niles Crane, who is very much a, a fuss budget, but who's very narrow uh, and strictly Christian, uh, devoutly so. And I'm, I was intrigued. Why did he even go up that mountain? George and Everett Dykink, two uh, Dutch Americans, big in New York at the time. They run a big literary journal. They're very influential. Melville was depending on them for good reviews, and they were giving them to him. And he needed their support, and they seemed to be friends. And in a sense, all of them were Dutch. The Dykinks, of course, but Melville came from the Gansevoorts. He was, uh, his on his mother's side, was Dutch. And Sarah is Dutch. She marries an Englishman, um, Roland Moorwood, but she comes from a Dutch family, the Hewlers in New Jersey. So they kind of felt they had this bond. Their Dutch backgrounds gave them a certain understanding. But I don't think Sarah realized, and I know Melville didn't, just how... Uh, sanctimonious these two characters could be. They were swept up in their social life in in the Berkshires, and they got invited at the last minute to go up on this trip to lend, I think, an air of respectability to it. But when they saw what Melville and Sarah were up to, I assume they turned against it because suddenly these best friends of Melville's write a very, very damning review of Moby Dick, and it's one of those reviews that helps to sink the book because they say that it makes a mockery of the most sacred associations of life. That's not what Moby Dick does. That's what Melville had done in their eyes by loving this woman. So one of the great secrets, I think, that comes out of this book that I've written is one explanation for what sunk the great American novel, because it wasn't discovered again for another 75 years. Those two brothers, who, by the way, Walt Whitman loathed, (laughs) and he loathed them for their sanctimonious character, their piousness, they sank that book or helped to sink it, and it wasn't rediscovered for another 75 years. They killed it in the place where many books are killed, New York City, by bad reviews. And writers who are good survive those things and go on and and, um, deal with the scar tissue. Melville was still a very young man. And dealing with that betrayal of friends, it wasn't just a bad review. It was a bad review by two friends who had seen something they didn't like in his life, and and they decided he needed chastising. And they chastised him. And they did it in a very personal way. And um, that, that broke Melville's heart, but it also helped to break his career. And that's why the story of Sarah Morwood is so important, because it helps to explain a national epic, Moby Dick. It helps to explain why it came about, partly under the enthusiasm and the the sense of sheer joy that Sarah and Melva were feeling as they fell in love and as Melva began to write this whale odyssey of his, and then why it sank, basically. And that, too, has to do with part of the reaction against what many people saw at the time was a developing relationship between these two. The guy, by the way, who really watches this very closely is the dean of the Harvard Medical School, whose summer home is in the Berkshires, across the road from Melville and Sarah's house, and that's Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., Dr. Holmes. 
And he wrote uh, a tribute to uh, Sarah Morwood as well in, a, in the form of a, a, a fiction, didn't he? He absolutely did. He was smitten by her. He wrote poems to her when she died. He wrote a lovely poem to her. Uh, he was half in love with her, but much too careful ever to have an affair. And yet he was fascinated by what was going on between Melville and Sarah, and he fictionalized it in a novel that's since been forgotten called Elsie Venner. But in Pittsfield, for many, many years, it was associated straight out. Guidebooks would say, oh, that Elsie Venner is based on the life of Sarah Morwood. And um, there's a Herman Melville character in it whom I think rather coyly uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes names Dick. <laughs> <laughs> In a, because he didn't, he was jealous of Melville, and um, and felt that Melville was, uh, of course, wrong to have this affair, and kind of got his own back at him in this now forgotten novel called Elsie Venner, but it's another one of the many things that tie this relationship together, and you cannot have so many connections, and begin to unravel them, and not see something seriously amiss in Melville's life because they all fit together. I'd be grateful if you could unpack for me the effect of this relationship, not just on Moby Dick, but on the book that follows it, Pierre the Amb- or the Ambiguities. As I was reading your book, my reading, rightly or wrongly, was that it's the passion of this relationship that kind of fuels him. It's not like he consults with her about what the book has to be or whatever, but it's just the passion. But then in the subsequent book, which he's hoping will re- reestablish his good name as a storyteller, it almost seems like a, a very metaphorical but somehow literal telling of what's going on in his own life. Absolutely. It's it's so fascinating that Melville, who's never really written about women in his own culture, he's written about the Polynesian maidens, he's written about the life as a sailor on both warships and whaling ships, but he's never written about women in his own culture. Suddenly, the moment he finishes Moby Dick and goes up Greylock, and spends that night there. The next day almost, he sets down and begins to write this novel called Pierre, which as many people see it as the most difficult of all of Melville's works. Because he's trying to tell the story of his affair in there, suddenly there in in Melville's work, there's this gorgeous, dark-haired woman who has a magnetic gaze, and all the adjectives applied to her fit the ones that Melville himself has applied to Sarah. Suddenly she's there, and she lures the young man out of supposedly a safe marriage to the to the good girl in the village, and she he, Pierre can't decide whether she's his angel or his devil, and you get essentially the the Morewood Melville love affair in that book, but people were let off the, the scent of that for so many years because he couldn't say or didn't feel he could say that this was about an affair between two married people, because that would have given the game away to everybody. Instead, he made it as though it was a a sort of incestuous relationship by a woman claiming to be his half-sister and Pierre, who um, supposedly didn't know his father had an affair and had this woman who comes to him and says, I'm your half-sister. You you must do something about me. Take care of me, whatever. Instead, Pierre falls in love with her. That incestuous theme was what he supplied to explain his attraction to a woman like the woman Pierre's related, uh, connected to, because he couldn't use adultery. So he decided to use another forbidden form of love. But that was far too forbidden. Uh, when the book came out, the critics just went crazy 
In fact, they called Melville crazy. They, they couldn't understand why you would write about an incestuous, at least marginally incestuous affair, uh, because we never know if the two lovers in that book uh, actually consummate anything. But that's their connection. And when you get that in the book, the 19th century, I mean, those critics couldn't deal with this. They thought he had lost his mind, and they said he belonged in an asylum for writing a book like that. It seemed crazy, and it was crazy, because everybody knew that this affair was tearing Melville's life apart, if not Sarah's, and his attempt to explain it in Pierre just made things worse. I didn't intend to bring this up to later in the hour, but since you raise it now, let's let's talk about it. It's really significant in the latter part of your book the number of times in which mental illness or a synonym is referenced by um, a contemporary of his or sometimes a family member. And when one hears the stories of his later life where he seems very isolated and just furious uh, and, according to his granddaughter, not particularly nice, uh, is there evidence that he was uh, off kilter a little bit? He was enraged. When Sarah died, it was an enormous blow to him. He knew she was dying. In the last year of her life, she, it was clear she was dying um, in 1863. So they'd had these 13 years together, but they were unsatisfactory. They were never able to enjoy the kind of relationship they wanted because he was stuck in his house. She was stuck in hers for the most part. They had together, their two farms together, formed about 400 of the most beautiful acres you will see in the Berkshires. So they had their horses and they had the trails and everything else that they could explore together and be alone in the woods, but it it wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't what they wanted. And I think if you – one of the first things you do when you buy that farmhouse, as Melville did, is build a trail, clear a trail, straight to her door, that would be another indication <laughs> that that they had plans. And that's exactly what Melville did. So he didn't build a trail or clear a trail. To Hawthorne's house six miles away. <laughs> it was to Sarah's house. And yet it was unsatisfactory. And when she died uh, 13 years later, he was so heartbroken that being able to hold his marriage together with Sarah there was something he could manage. Without her there, he couldn't. And within a few years, not only did his marriage just almost completely fall apart, but one of their children, one of Melville's children by Lizzie, his wife, uh, committed suicide under the strain, I'm sure, of this just awful marriage as it as it turned into. And at one point, Lizzie's own family wanted to abduct Sarah, uh, Lizzie from Melville's house because they thought she was in danger. There's no proof that she ever was, but there's no denying that Melville was just lost in grief and anger. And he didn't recover at all for many years, I think. Uh, it was never a wound that healed. And when you have people like his famous character Bartleby, the Scrivener, say in response to, you know, entreaties to do something, I prefer not to, it's, it's kind of this cry out of Melville's heart after his affair began to crumble. He didn't care about doing anything anymore. And he retreated into himself and became more and more isolated. He gets a job in New York after he leaves the Berkshires working as a customs officer in the, in the U.S. Customs down at the docks in New York. And one day, a fellow who knew of Melville in the days when he was a celebrated novelist comes to the customs office, recognizes Herman Melville, looks at him and says, what are you doing here? He was that forgotten and that marginalized. And when he died, the New York Times obituary 
uh, I think called him Herbert Melville or you know miss didn't didn't get his name right um, he was that forgotten so some blow occurred that either drove Melville mad or just drove him into a kind of inconsolable grief and no one's ever been able to explain what that is I think I do it's not just the loss of his reputation as a writer but it's this other much more personal loss they're all connected everything is connected once Moby Dick fails and he desperately writes Pierre to try to succeed, but it's even worse in terms of its popular um, reception. He just, he watches his career and his life unravel. And he hangs on to what he can of it until Sarah herself is no longer there. And then then he agrees to go back to New York. And, and he struggles on for years and nothing ever happens. He writes a beautiful poem in the 1880s when he's an old man about returning to the Berkshires and standing on the shore of a lake where he and Sarah used to spend so much time. And this beautiful vision comes out of the woods, very much like Sarah, and walks up to him and just says two words. She says, let go, let go. And it's, it's clearly an effort for Melville to tell himself, I got to give this up. I got I to gotta put myself back together. But it's too late. He really can't, and he never does. He never does restore his life after that heartbreak. If you've just joined us, we're talking tonight with uh, Michael Sheldon, the author of the new book, Melville in Love, an exploration of Melville's relationship with a woman named Sarah Morwood and the uh, implications both professional and personal for him. Melville doesn't recover, but you get the impression that she does. She goes on and has quite a reputation through the Civil War and, and beyond. Well, not beyond. She, as she dies early on, as you say. But she becomes quite a figure in the community. She wants to live. And she wants to live with a kind of urgency that comes from, I think, a notion that you don't have long to live. And so Melville falls into despair and struggles with that. But Melville's going to live into his 70s. Melville is a very strong man in many ways. Um, a sailor who's who's endured a lot of things before he gets to the Berkshires. Sarah's a more delicate person in in her physical character, not in her mind. She's a very strong person in her mind. And she's determined to enjoy what she has of her life, and that's why she's in the Berkshires. She loves it. It's gorgeous. She has her horses. She has her farm. She has this fabulous scenery around her. Many people who knew her talk about how much she loved living in that area. And I've roamed over it. It's, it's in, incredible that her house and Melville's farmhouse are still there. The, the land is pretty much untouched. Her house is a country club it's or something. It's now a now. country club, right. and they've kept the house a lot like it was, and you can wander through it and see some of the same scenes from their relationship that I describe in the book. It's really quite remarkable. So much of the scenery there is, I think, this is unusual for America. We tend to plow everything over, but it's still there. And uh, you could set up your cameras and film the story right on that that location because Greylock's still there in the distance. The hills are still rolling. The, the meadows are still green. The, the Housatonic River still runs through the middle of it. It's gorgeous. And Melville and Pierre, uh, the first half of that book, he just it's a, it's a tribute to the Berkshires and to love. And where that's coming from, if it's not coming from Sarah, I have no idea, but it's there. And she would not give that up. She loved that. And when the Civil War broke out, she became 
almost the the most leading um, personage in the in the community because she supported the troops with her money, with her husband's money, and with her efforts and time. Camps were named after her by Union troops as they moved around the battlefields. They they had their camp Moorwoods. Uh, men wrote her affectionate letters from faraway places because they treasured the attention she had given them. Uh, before they left for battle, she she kept up a correspondence with a lot of them. And all of this, Melville is at her side. Melville enjoyed watching her enjoy herself. Not sexually, I don't think, with these other men, but enjoying, enjoying their attention and enjoying being a productive member of her community, unlike so many other women of the time who couldn't, you know, who never could find something useful to do because they were denied the opportunity. Suddenly the war breaks that out and she's able to do some things that are very useful and meaningful. And I think one of the things that, about this book that I'm very proud of, even though it's called Melville in Love and there's no mention of Sarah in the title, she almost steals the book, I think you might agree. She runs away with it because she's such a magnificent character about whom we knew literally nothing until I very painstakingly put her life back into some order from her papers and tried to understand why Melville would write in the way that he did to her. Now, I can remember in the 1970s, uh, there was a resurgence of a lot of uh, unknown women writers by feminist presses. Is there an argument to be made that uh, her writing, even if it's only epistolary in nature, uh, ought to be revived and available outside uh, Berkshire Historical Society? <laughs> yes, some of it certainly should be because it's... Um, in in some cases, it influenced Melville. Um, she wrote this interesting phrase about the Civil War called Aspect of the War. And Melville picked that up, that odd phrase, for his subtitle of his book of poems about the Civil War. So she had his ear, and he he was attuned to what she was trying to say. I think others would find that interesting as well. But the problem is, it never impressed itself upon me that this would be such a problem is we're 150 years away from this and more. And it's very hard to get things out of that period that aren't in some way mangled, incomplete, um, totally missing in some cases. And that's the case with a lot of her stuff. I would find in her box of letters, I would find a, a sheet of some of her poetry and then it would suddenly end. And there was a missing sheet or missing two sheets as far as I knew. No care was taken, as it wasn't with many of these women, to preserve their work. Think about Emily Dickinson. She, she's, it's really, we're just fortunate that she had people around her who cared enough to preserve some of her work. And we didn't have that with someone like Sarah. So we don't know what we're missing. We just have the tip of the iceberg in the things that she wrote um, that have survived. Although when you look at her family and her husband in particular, you don't think it's from animosity, um, but perhaps just from neglect. He seems like somebody who really genuinely cared for her. Uh, Roland, is that his name? Roland. Right. And perhaps just never thought that her writing was worth preserving? Well, his problem was he he was almost always in New York with his business. That's where he made his money. And his business, I call it the most unpoetic of all businesses. He sold bolts and spikes and lightning rods. <laughs> Not not the sort of man that's going to say, dear, could you read me some more of your poetry tonight? Uh, that, that wasn't going to happen. So when poor Sarah died, Roland was not the guy 
to, to make sure that he preserved her legacy. That's why Melville is so important in her life. He is the guy who knows how good she is, but he doesn't have rights in the matter. He isn't her husband. In fact, he's her secret lover. And so he, he shows up from time to time after her death in the family um, correspondence and in other things that happened to the family. But he couldn't claim his rights in that. He had no rights. He couldn't come back and say, by the way, you know, I was her lover and her friend for 13 years. So, you know, he, he disappears from the scene for the most part, except for that incredibly moving poem he writes about having her come to him as a kind of ghost. And by the way, one of the things that gives away that ghost is Sarah, is that she's wearing um, a crown of, of, um, of leaves. Um, it's almost like a, a laurel wreath crown like they used to put on poets like Dante or whatever. And that's significant because my book begins, as you know, with the most extraordinary moment for me. Melville's book is a failure in town and a failure all across the country, Moby Dick. And he goes to Christmas dinner at Sarah's house, and, and she's invited all the notables from town. And they're all waiting to go into dinner on Christmas Day. And what does she do? She takes Melville by the arm, goes into the dining room, and there on a plate is a laurel wreath crown that she has herself woven. And in front of everyone, she picks this up and very dramatically crowns him, puts it on his head. As though to say, maybe the world doesn't know Moby Dick is a great book, but I do. And that moment was lost to us for 150 years. It was in a, it's described in a letter by Melville's own mother who witnesses that and doesn't know what the hell to make of it. Because <laughs> her, her husband's in the room. Uh, yeah. Sarah's husband's in the room. Yeah, and, and Sarah ignores her husband. Melville's wife significantly has taken off for a long period. She's gone for about two months in this period. And there they are in her house. And instead of taking her lord and master, as, as he would have been seen at the time, on her arm to dinner, she takes Melville. And more than that, crowns him. And that's in keeping with their courtly uh, traditions of love that they've been exchanging in their letters. He is her knight. And she does what maidens do for the knight that she loves. She, she crowns him with this. And it's an amazing moment. Melville's mother writes about it, doesn't know what to make of it, puts it in a letter to one of Melville's sisters. The letter sits in the sister's you know, papers for years, goes to a barn in upstate New York, and 150 years later, somebody's digging around in that barn, finds these papers. They end up at the New York Public Library, and they still haven't been properly uh, sorted through because there were so many of these letters. And there I found in one of these letters this amazing description of what Sarah did on that Christmas day, one month after the publication of Moby Dick. There's just one honor that Melville ever received in his lifetime for the great American novel. And that was the moment that Sarah Morwood crowned him on Christmas Day, 1851. If you're going to get one prize, though, that's a good prize to get for him. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the years from 1850 to 1863 when uh, Melville and Sarah Morwood have this, uh, I don't know what to call it exactly, affair, dalliance, exchange, uh, and his later life. But let's talk now about... Um, how he comes back into the American mainstream of uh, letters. Uh, so fast forward to what, about eight, uh, 1920, and he's rediscovered by uh, a graduate student? 
Melville's story of his reemergence after his death is either very uh, comforting for writers or really depressing for writers <laughs> because he dies in 1891 and really his books had not sold. He was neglected. He was forgotten. Flash forward another 25 years and the thing that makes the difference is World War One. If you're reading a book about a crazy, um, insane, maniacal sea captain leading his men, you know, off the ends of the earth, chasing some some blank slate across the ocean, some white whale, you don't get it in the 19th century because you're full of dreams about conquering the continent. And, you know, the American uh, society at that time wasn't ready for this. But when you know the stories that come out of World War One, where you have these insane charges, I mean, of men on battlefields in which thousands are mowed down by machine guns and generals are moving huge divisions around on a map and they're being slaughtered by the by the hundreds of thousands. You kind of begin to understand where uh, the insanity of, 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 a, of a Captain Ahab could come. And that got people interested in him to the point where a young grad student at Columbia, just after the war, I think this is interesting, it's 1919 where he gets interested in this. So it's just one year after the war concluded. And he he searches for material about Melville and finds very little. So he finds a granddaughter, still alive. She's in her 30s. And he goes to her and he says, basically, have you got any Melville material? And she says, you might go in the attic. And in the attic, he finds Billy Budd. He finds letters. He finds all kinds of things. And he begins to write his biography of Melville. That was the first one. He makes no mention of Sarah Morewood. In fact, none of the biographers ever do. They um, they just don't take her seriously, and it's, it's she's not a name you'll find in the index. No, no, wow. not at all. As I said earlier, I think it's a kind of male blockage. Hawthorne is there for God's sakes, man. Don't you understand? That would have been the fellow he was interested in. Forget about that socialite up on the hill. That's the attitude, and it's so pervasive you can't ignore it because it lasts a hundred years. Hundred years of Melville biographers ignoring the woman who lives next door in favor of the guy six miles away, who's there for a year, by the way. And hates the Berkshires. Hates the Berkshires. Hates anything to do with intimacy between men. <laughs> you know, it's talk about the red herring of all red herrings. And is happily married and clears out <laughs> after a year and, and won't have anything to do with Melville's crazy trips up Greylock, right? And yet that's the guy that, that, every, that all these male biographers have championed over the years. Well, Weaver, though, at least did the spade work early on to get some of this information saved and into his biography. And that started a huge wave of, of resurgent interest in Melville so that Virginia Woolf became an early champion, Somerset Maugham, uh, E.M. Forrester, D.H. Lawrence. They all began to rave in England about this. The, the early work on Melville was best received in England, but then... In the late 1920s, writers like William Faulkner, himself a little crazy <laughs> and a little obsessed, suddenly thinks, you know that Melville guy? That's quite an interesting guy, and I like that Moby Dick. And he begins to talk about how much he admires Moby Dick. And by the 1940s, there's, there's just a, a great renewal of interest. And by the 50s, he becomes a, a, a settled icon in American literature. And they haven't been able to budge him, and they won't be able to because 
Melville was a very inclusive guy. He loved women. He loved um, the cause of abolition long before it became popular. His book, Moby Dick, is, is wonderful for the sense of inclusiveness, the ability to relate to other cultures, to other kinds of people. It's a very democratic book. And so he's not likely to be tarred by the brush of political incorrectness that has hurt so many other writers because he's in many ways far ahead of his time. And a lovely man, really a lovely man, in those early days. He lost it. He was a man, if you discover this in Moby Dick, a man with a great sense of humor, uh, a great expansiveness in his character. The romance brings all that out in him, and the fall of the romance destroys it and turns him into a bitter recluse. And it's a tragedy. Uh, It's a tragedy with a lot of people who are caught up in it. Uh, Melville's to blame solely for a lot of the things he did. But he he comes across something he must have. And in that sense, we understand when we read Moby Dick what's going on. This wild pursuit of something you're never going to get that may well take you down beneath the waves, destroy you and everyone else along with it, is exactly what happened to Melville as a result of his pursuit of Sarah Morwood. It is the fate of Melville's own life to give up everything for love, in his case, not for a whale, but for a woman, and to find it all come back on him and sink first his career and then his life. And um, it's an amazing story. I, I feel grateful that I was able to recapture so much of it after such a long period of time. I think that's a good place to, to end the hour. Michael Sheldon, thank you very much for your time this hour. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Our guest has been Michael Sheldon, author of Melville in Love, The Secret Life of Herman Melville and the Muse of Moby Dick. For Profiles, I'm Will Murphy. Thank you for joining us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.